today we're starting a brand new series. I'll get to the title as to why it's a weird title in a moment, but um, I first just want to start off by saying that um, a few years ago, I started noticing this word everywhere, and the word was handmade or handcrafted. Um, I started noticing it on uh, restaurant menus. When you go to lunch today, wherever you go, look for this word. Um, you'll see it in a lot of restaurants. Um, I think it's being overused, but it's the word handmade or handcrafted, and it's used to describe everything. So you might, you might see things like this, where you see uh, hand, handmade sandwiches, right? Um, I'm not sure what's so special about the handmade part, but they'll say handmade sandwiches. Or you might see things like this. I, I think Jack said he worked at Starbucks. Do you still work at Starbucks or they, did you? You still kind of work at Starbucks. Uh, so um, handcrafted sodas. Handcrafted sodas. I'm going to ask the obvious question. How do you handcraft a soda? Can anyone explain that to me? Like, Jack, you worked at Starbucks, right? So how do you handcraft a soda? What does that mean? Nobody knows what it means. So there's handcrafted sodas. Um, then we have things like uh, this next slide, uh, hand-scooped ice cream. You see it. And, and it's just odd because I look at that and go, what other way is there to scoop ice cream? A robot? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Um, yeah. And then I started thinking about, like, is it really hand scoop? Like, did you really stick your grubby little hand down in there and, like, put it into my ice cream cone? Because I want the real deal. I don't want some scoop. I want your actual hand to scoop the ice cream for me. Um, so why do people use these kinds of words as their, as their marketing things? Um, I, I think it's part of it is just to fill up space. It's just like, you know, instead of just saying, like, sodas, it, it sounds better to say handcrafted sodas. Because all of a sudden you're like, ooh, handcrafted. I don't know what that means, but it sounds wonderful, you know? And it's just an odd way of, I think, of marketing things. that so we see it everywhere. Um, now, I understand. I mean, these are kind of ridiculous examples. But I understand if something truly is handmade, um, it's fine to advertise that. So, uh, so when I think of, like, truly handmade things, um, I went and visited my parents in Virginia last month, and we walk. Uh, my parents have this, this really cool area where they live where there's this field behind their house, and behind the field is this river. And we are convinced that there was a Native American village there at one point because whenever the field gets plowed up, you can walk through and just find arrowheads, like real deal, fully sculpted arrowheads. And so my niece... Um, was walking through this field, and she just picks up this, like, mint condition arrowhead. I mean, it's just perfect, like, totally not all together, just totally not, not chipped off or anything. It's a perfect, perfectly shaped arrowhead. And it's really cool to hold something like that and know that, like, several hundred years ago, someone made this with their hands and some tools, but they made this by hand. I also think about, I went to Africa on a mission trip many years ago in Zimbabwe, and on the side of the road, you can buy all kinds of handcrafted, handmade things. And, uh, and so I thought, you know what? You know what everybody, every college student needs 
is a monkey-shaped salt and pepper shaker. Like everyone in college needs one of those. Um, I've never actually used these for salt and pepper. It's kind of a weird idea to think of salt coming out of monkey's eyeballs like that. It's just kind of a weird idea, so I haven't used them for that. Just decoration. Uh, but, but so I bought those. And it is cool to, like, buy something and you go, someone actually made this with their hand. You can see the little marks that someone left as they created something like this. Um, and so what's the fascination with, you know, handmade or handcrafted? What's the fascination with this kind of thing? I, I think the, the, the fascination is um, when something is made by hand by someone else, we know they put their, their blood, sweat, and tears into it. It, it seems more authentic right, to say something's handmade. Uh, you will never see advertised factory made, right? That will never be something that someone says, Let, let's advertise like it's factory made because it's not really a big deal. It's like just that's kind of impersonal. Uh, so the handmade thing is like a, a big deal because we think of it as someone put their blood and sweat into this and, um, and we can see literally the markings they left behind on this particular item. And so um, we'll talk later on about why we're calling this series Handmade Disciples. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. That'll be our text today. Matthew 28, looking at verses 18 to 20. And this is the very end of the book of Matthew. And this is when Jesus is with his disciples and they're on a mountaintop. And he says these words to him. It's the last recorded words in the book of Matthew where Jesus says, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Before we talk about discipleship, I want to talk about the things that are around it in this passage. After the resurrection, Jesus meets with his disciples on this mountaintop, and he tells them this last statement. And I want you to look at, whenever you're looking at a passage, I want you to look at all the verbs. So look at, he says, go, make. He says, baptize, teach. Those are the verbs that jump out. So go and make. That, that involves, that means that that making disciples involves movement, it involves action. You can't just sit idly by and expect it to happen, but there's a go, there is a, you need to get in gear and get moving, and this needs to involve you moving somewhere in some direction. So there's go, there's make. Um, also, what also jumps out to me is, is who. He's talking to the disciples, but who does he say to go to? He says, eventually, you're going to go to all nations. All nations. The Great Commission has always been worldwide in scope. This is why when I see things like what happened in my home state, Charlottesville, Virginia, um, this past couple of weeks, it's heartbreaking to watch that. And it's especially heartbreaking when you, you understand that some of the people who are white supremacists claim to be Christians. Because something they don't get about the Great Commission 
is the Great Commission was meant to include all people, all nations. Jesus is clear from the very beginning. And so to think that someone would think that they can, in the name of Jesus, exclude certain people or look down on other people is just completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. And we might be appalled at what happens, these racially charged things in our country, and we are appalled, but it also serves as a reminder that um, sin should never surprise us. Let's just say it that way. Because of our understanding of of our life apart from God, sin should never take us by surprise. It's appalling, but it should be expected that some people are going to treat others in this way. But here's the deal. It, It is completely antithetical to what Jesus was about as he tells the disciples to go make disciples of all nations. This is also why we talked about this last week in our, in our service. We, ha- we talked about the New York City mission trip. We said that um, the place we serve in New York City is called Urban Nations Outreach. And it's awesome because these people in, in Queens, New York, they want to be a lighthouse to the people that are coming from all over the world to New York City. That is their mission. And so they understand this mission that it's all nations. It is all nations. We are sitting here, just think about this, we are sitting here in Temple, Texas, 2017, because the early disciples got and understood this passage. They understood that this should include all people. And so they went and they made disciples. And then those people went and made disciples. And here we are, we sit, the epicenter of Christianity was half a world away. And look what's happened in the world. There, there are so many places in the world that could be considered an epicenter now of Christianity because these early disciples got it and they sent and they went and they went and made disciples. We also see in here it says to baptize and to teach. So why is baptism such a big deal? It's in the Great Commission. So what happened last week Last Sunday night, we had about 20 people get baptized over here in in our baptismal, and this is part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Um, This talks about teaching. This is why we teach so much around here. It's why in almost every setting you walk into, you're going to see some kind of teaching usually because it's in the Great Commission. It's in Jesus' last words to his disciples. And we don't teach just for information. The point of teaching is not just for me to transfer what I've studied this week into your brains. It's not just informational, but it should also be relational. Teaching should also be relational. And I want you to see something here. Um, Something else he says, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what that means. That's a fancy way of saying that obedience matters. Obedience is a big deal. Obedience matters. So we don't just teach for information so you know things. We teach so life change can happen, and it leads into a life of obedience. 
Now, I want you to see this last statement Jesus makes. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, why do you think he would make a statement like that as the last thing that he would say in the Great Commission? Why do you think he says that? Up to this point, the disciples know Jesus is going going to go and ascend back to be with his father. And what emotion do you think they're experiencing as they come into this knowledge? Would it be fear? They've seen Jesus for the last three years heal people and, and lead them and minister with them and teach them and teach the crowds. And now all of a sudden he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to leave this, this commission to you, my disciples. And I would imagine they're afraid. They're fearful. And do you think it's important for them to remember that he's with them in this moment? They're going to encounter hardship and persecution and suffering as they go make disciples And you think it's important for them to know that Jesus is with them as they go? I want you to think back to the beginning part of the book of Matthew. In chapter 1, verse 23, don't turn there. But the verse is a famous verse. It says, Behold the virgin, meaning Mary, mother of Jesus. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? You know what it says? It's not Jesus, but it's the name. It starts with an I, Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. So think about this. The very beginning part of Matthew starts off with this pronouncement that Jesus, also Emmanuel, God with us is coming. And the last thing Jesus says when he leaves this earth with his disciples, he says, I'm going to be with you. So Matthew starts off with God with us. Matthew ends with God with us. And this brings me, I think, great comfort right now because um, as many of you already know, I mean, ever since Gary, our senior pastor, got sick four years ago with cancer and the cancer came back recently and right now he's doing okay, but everyone, you know, it just feels like we're in a weird place right now as a church. It just feels a little bit heavy because of that. But I find great comfort in this passage because um, it's good for us to know there was even a time when Jesus had to leave. And it probably caused some fear among his followers. And yet Jesus says, he goes, no, I'm still, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving. I'm leaving, but I'm still going to be here. And it brings me great comfort to know that as we as a church, listen, every single pastor on staff at this church eventually is going to have to retire. This is, this is all temporary. And it's good for us to know, I think, that as we get attached to human leaders and certain people and ways of doing things, that behind all that, there is this promise that Jesus says, he says, I'm with you as you go. I'm with you as you go. I find great comfort in that. And we're going to, I want to define for you now just what this disciple word is. Very simply, disciple is a follower. 
Disciples, a follower. Everyone today wants to be a leader, not a follower. If you ask people today, are you a leader or a follower, most would want to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a leader. It may not be true, but we, we, won't, we at least want to say, you know, I'm a leader. People see me as a, a fashion pioneer. Everybody wants to dress like I dress. You want to be a leader, not followers. Following Jesus goes against our cultural values, our individualism, and our self-sufficiency. We don't want to be a follower. Nobody follows a follower. People follow a leader, right? So being a Christian, listen, I'm going to kind of paint a picture for you of what it means to be a disciple as we think about following Jesus. Being a Christian does not mean we just believe some facts about Jesus. That's not being a follower of Jesus. Agreeing with some ideas or saying that, yeah, I believe in the historical facts as you've laid them out, that's not the same thing as being a follower of Jesus. Being a follower means that your life has been changed by him. As Philippians 2 verse 1 says, you've been united with Christ. You're one with Christ. You see, the gospel tells us, the good news, that God is good, and he created all things, including mankind, is good. But you don't have to look very hard around us to see that things have gone terribly wrong. Case in point, what happened last week all over the news. You don't have to look very far to know that things have gone horribly wrong with mankind, and so we call this sin, and it's in all of us apart from Christ. And all of us have gone and turned away from God and his law. And because God is good and he's just, he brings sin to justice. But here's the good news in that, is that his goodness leads not only to judgment, but also to mercy. And we find this mercy in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And a guy named Mark Dever describes it this way. He says, through his death and resurrection, all the guilt of sin that is yours becomes his, and all the righteousness that is his becomes yours. This is called, the theological word for this is called double imputation. I did not say amputation. I said imputation. Double imputation, meaning that we and our guilt and sin is placed on Jesus. But then his righteousness is placed and applied to us. It's double imputation. And we accept this through one means, and it's through faith. We accept this free gift through faith. We turn away from our sin and we follow him. So you're not saved by obedience. You're not saved by, by your act of turning away. But because of your faith... And trust in him, it should lead to a life where someone does turn away and want to follow after him. Discipleship begins when you hear the words from Jesus, follow me, and you obey them. To be a Christian means to be a disciple. There's been a lot of debate in, in years past 
people talking about, um, can, someone, can somebody be a Christian but not a disciple? And there's people that say, you know, yeah, you can be a Christian and not a disciple. Like you can be a, just a really immature, fleshly Christian. And others would say, no, you're either, um, there are no Christians who are also not disciples. I would agree with the second statement that there are no Christians who are also not disciples. There's no two classes. Do we all struggle with sin? Absolutely. But there's no Christian who is also not a disciple. So at this church a few years back, uh, we began asking the question, what does a disciple look like? And we came up with three ideas, big ideas. And the words are, should be familiar to you hopefully by now. But surrender, community, and mission. Surrender meaning there does need to be this initial. Um, I was walking this way towards sin, towards my own flesh, towards what I want for my life. I was on the throne of my own life. And I came to this realization through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner in need of grace and mercy. And so because of that realization, as the Holy Spirit opened up my eyes to that new reality, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him and surrender and submit my life to him. This is what we call surrender. And you may not know the day or the hour this happened in your life, but the question becomes, where are you right now? Are you in a place in your life right now where you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Are you in a place where you believe that, yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior And have you called on his name and called on his grace and mercy to save you from your sins? This is the picture of surrender. It's not about just praying some prayer to get saved. It's about a reality in the heart and a belief and a faith and a trust in who he is. Then we have community. And this is, you you don't just get saved or become a Christian so that you can just live your life, go turn on the television and find your favorite preacher and scroll through and then listen to some good sermons and then, and then you go have lunch. That's not what it means to be a Christian. But there is a communal aspect to being a follower of Christ. And so it's not just me, but it's also we together. And we should be living life alongside each other and expressing the one another's in Scripture towards each other. And there's a community aspect of being a disciple. Then we have mission. So the point of being a disciple is not just to, you know, have your little Christian friends and just you live life and you grow and you have your little Bible studies and you just, you know, go on about your week. But it's, it's being on mission together as a community. I heard a guy say one time that community can never be the mission. But you've got to be a community that's on a mission. Community never happens when community is the point. It happens when you're on a mission. This is why impact is always a highlight for me. Because you're on a mission together. And that creates community as you go. But community is not the point. The mission is the point. But it creates community. So we can give you a definition and kind of break it down into these parts. But I want to give you like what, what being a disciple looks like with 
with real flesh. And this comes from a guy named Jared Wilson. Believing God has a plan, believing God has a plan for me, even when I'm afraid he doesn't. So what are some things that you fear? Where do your fears lie? How about this one? Believing God loves me even when I feel like nobody else does. Trusting that God is doing something for my good even though my life has always been terrible up till now. There's a settled trust in this person. Following Jesus even though my feelings speak more loudly. Doing what's right, even though I don't really want to. Imagining a time when I won't hurt as much as I do right now. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is putting flesh on the concepts I just described of surrender, community, mission. You having the hope in Jesus Christ where you can see in faith beyond the present, and even though things are hard right now, things are difficult right now, you know you're going to hang on to Jesus and cling to him in the midst of whatever you're going through at this moment because you know it's true and it's right and it's good. I want to turn our attention to not just what it means to be, but also what it means to um, this idea of discipling. So this series is going to be not just trying to define what a disciple is, but it's going to be trying to look at what the process of discipling should look like. That's what this series is about. So here's how we would define discipling. Here's how we define it. Doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. Very simply. Doing spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. I think when most of us think of discipling, most of us picture someone just teaching information, but discipling is highly relational. It's highly relational. One of my favorite things as a pastor here at this church is seeing our leaders, many in this room, posting pictures of where you guys go, like we went for a hike, we went to this place in Austin, we went here, we went there. And I love seeing that because this is a picture of the relational part of discipling. And it's, it's just powerful. And it's amazing to watch the leaders in this room take that on as a calling. It's incredible to watch. Last night we got to celebrate at our house, we got to um, just kind of thank Anthony for his many years of serving here with us. Um, Next Sunday will be his last Sunday with us, which is a sad, kind of a bittersweet thing for everybody here. Um, but we got to celebrate last night. It was just a lot of fun to hear, have students and leaders just share ways in which he's impacted them in their lives. So last night was a celebration of what I'm talking about, this relational aspect of discipling. Another guy, I don't want to embarrass him, but another guy that was there last night said, hey, man, I've been... I've been meeting with my upperclassmen guys just one by one, just going to have coffee, going to have a meal. And, and I love that. I love hearing those kinds of stories about the impact and the way that our leaders are being intentional trying to reach out to you in your, in your lives. One of my favorite things 
is when I see our leaders go on hikes, road trips with the people that are in this room. And you know what? I think, I think that's kind of what Jesus did. Jesus went on some hikes. I mean, they saw some crazy things on those hikes, but he went on some hikes. And he spent time with his disciples. He spent time with them in real relationship. I think we always picture Jesus like he, he like levitates into a crowd and does some holy teaching and then like levitates out and goes and spends time with the Father. You know, like he's, that's how we picture Jesus. But I think Jesus, he was highly relational with these men that he discipled for, for several years. And I think when we, we think about or talk about discipling, I know most of you picture that as being, well, yeah, that's what the leaders do. That's what the leaders, they, they do that discipling thing. No. Yeah, it's, it's on us to disciple. That's true. But the Great Commission is for everyone. That means we all get to join in on this party. We all get to be a part of this process of discipling. Everyone has a different calling and a different gift, but every Christian is called into this mission. You know, years ago, there was a student uh, here, a great, a great student in this ministry, and he became an intern after he graduated. He was here, for, for about, for, I think, for about a year as an intern here with us. And then he started feeling called to go to a different church in our area, and I was like, man, I, I love that you're being used by God here, and we'd love to have you here, but at the same time, I also want to be, I don't want to be selfish so um, you're feeling called somewhere else, like, God bless you as you go. I said, I just have one question, though. You've, you've served here in high school. You've served here your first year of college. But whenever you get to where you're going, what are you going to do when you get there? Like, like tell me how you're going to plug in and be a part and lead and shepherd and disciple. And that's my only question is, what are you going to do when you get there? Because all of us are called to make disciples in some capacity. No one should be sitting on the sidelines and just, I'm, I'm going to take a time out. I'm going get to some, get some water, catch a little wind, you know, and just kind of chill out for a while. Like, no, that's not what it means to be called to make disciples. So this discipling thing happens through the church. It always happens through the church. God has tasked the church and his people with this this task. If you want to be discipled or make disciples, it has to, the first place you should look is the local church. David Wells says this. He says, it is very easy to build churches. Do my next slide here. There we go. It is very easy to build churches in which seekers congregate. It is very hard to build churches in which biblical faith is maturing into genuine discipleship. This thing should never become about just trying to build a crowd on a Sunday or a Wednesday, but should be about discipleship. It's about making disciples. Gathering a crowd's not hard. If you get a really good worship band and a somewhat decent speaker, gathering a crowd's not difficult, especially down here in Texas. It's, it's not that difficult, but making disciples, now that is, that is blood, sweat, and toil. That is hard. That is difficult. It's not hard to draw a crowd, but to make disciples, that is a, a tough order 
You know, at the, even at this church, and we're trying real hard to put that vision before our people, but even at this church, there's about 70% of our church comes on a Sunday morning and they sit in a chair and they sing some songs and they listen to a speaker and then they walk out the door. And they're not using their gifts. They don't really know anybody. And that's not discipleship. Those, that 70%, those people are missing out. This is not, my, my intent is not to make anybody feel guilty. My intent is to say, man, you're missing, you're missing out. You're missing out on what God wants for you and has for you. Mark Dever, Dever says, Christianity, oops, Christianity, the religion of the Bible is not for the rugged individual, the self-made man who needs no one else. It's a religion for disciples of Christ, followers who, who lead others to do the same. This discipleship thing is not meant to be something that's just for individual and I'm self-sufficient. I just come in and get my fix and I go out the door, I'm ready for the week. It's a shot in the arm of encouragement. No, it's it's us together. This is communal. This is also we're on mission together. And this is what discipleship should look like. Everyone in this room brings something to the table. Every single person in here brings something to the table. Everyone in this room has the ability to influence others towards Jesus. In our world, I think you know this to be true, in our world... Friendship is, is pretty shallow. Just think about your, your own friendships for a minute, and I struggle with this too. But when is the last significant conversation you had with someone that you're good friends with? If you have a lot of those, congratulations, you're probably in the minority. But let's be honest, friendship is fairly shallow. How often do you really have, you're really impacting each other's lives towards Jesus. God has given you the chance to shape other people and also to be shaped by other people. And discipleship is difficult and it's messy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Last week, my lawn needed to be mowed and my son is now 10 years old. So it's time. And he doesn't know how to mow the lawn yet. And if you've been to my house, I have a really big hill. And which is why my mower is self-propelled. I learned the hard way. And uh, so I said, Landon, we're going to show you how to mow the grass. And I knew it was going to be hard and painful first time. But I've got to walk him out there and show him, Landon, here's how you check the gas. Here's how you check the oil in the mower. And he's got the gas can, and he's got the funnel. I'm like, here's how you pour the gas into the gas tank. And he's spilling gas everywhere. And I'm like, this thing is going to blow up when we're done. It's going to be bad. And once that part's finished, and it's like, okay, now I'm going to show you how. Here's how I do it. Here's, I'm, I explain every single thing, every little step. i got to explain to him. And what normally takes me about 20 minutes took us over an hour. And there were times when he's, he's looking at me, even though it's self-propelled, he's, he's like, Daddy, he's like, I can't do this. I can't. This is too hard. I'm like, no, no, you can do this. And I'm walking along next to him, 
I look like a helicopter parent probably from across the street, but I'm walking along kind of holding the, the mower in place so he can guide it and show him how to guide it. And he's, his lines are just, you know, all over the place. And I'm like, let me, let me show, I'm trying to be so calm and just understanding, like, it's okay, let me show you how to do this. And so at one point um, towards the end, uh, he just kind of broke down and lost it. And he's like, I got, like, itchy things all over me, and it's just hurting, and I, I need to go inside and get some juice. And he, like, walks inside the house, and I was like, all right, that'll be lesson, lesson one, all right? Mr. Miyagi will show you more later, okay? So, but listen, it's messy and it's difficult, but that's a picture of discipleship. It's, 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 it can be painstaking, but it's worth it as we show others what it means to follow Jesus. And so going back to this, like, handmade idea. So when you look at something that's truly handmade, you can... You can literally see the marks that someone has left on something like this. You can see their, in a sense, their, their handprints, their, their markings they've left on an item like this. And when I think about my own life, I think about specific marks that people left on my life. I know Anthony said last night, he said, there are people that have marked his life and people that have been marked by other leaders in this room. And you can see the specific marks people have left on your life. And most of the time it happens in informal ways, not formal but informal. Discipling is leaving a mark on someone else's life. And by the time you, you guys finish high school, we should be able to look at your life and say, and see the marks of other people all over your life. And that's going to happen not just in a classroom or a stage or around a table, but it's going to happen in significant conversations. And when that leader or student came to you and said, hey, man, I'm really concerned about where your life is heading right now, and I'm just seeing a lot of you're just caught up in relationships or you're caught up in this or that. And when that person had the boldness to speak into your life and to say, you know, I, I just, I'm concerned about you and I care for you. And you can look at that and say, you know, that person marked my life. They left a mark on my life. So who's marked your life? Two questions. Will you allow your life to mark the lives of others? And will you allow your life to be marked by the lives of others? That's what we're discussing in this series. Let's pray.